You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. The 21 countries of Latin America, including South America, Central America, Mexico, parts of the Caribbean, are home to some of the richest and most flavorless culinary traditions in the world. And we have an expert on those traditions with us today for Food Friday with the author of a new cookbook with more than 300 homestyle recipes from all over that region. You can join in at 800-642-1234. What are your favorite Latin American or Latin American-inspired recipes, uh, ingredients, dishes? Do you have a, a family recipe that fits the bill that you'd like to tell us about? Tell us about the best Latin American food you've ever eaten. Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. You can also post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Sandra Gutierrez is a journalist, food historian, a professional cooking instructor, and author of five cookbooks. Her latest is called Latinissimo, Home Recipes from the 21 Countries of Latin America. Sandra, thanks a lot for joining us today. Hello, Rob. Thank you for having me. Now, I'll admit, I grew up in a small town in the Midwest. Latin American food that I encountered was, was Taco Bell and not much more. We're getting so much more availability to food, not just from Mexico now, but all over the region. Can you talk about uh, I don't know, this region and the food it's bringing us, this great food it's bringing us in the United States? Yes, your experience, you're not alone in it. Uh, most people have tried Mexican food and that's it. And that is why in my book I explain that Mexican food is the front door to Latin American cuisines. But mm-hmm. once you cross over the threshold of that house, you will find 20 other kitchens inside. And each one is as exciting and as valuable and as vibrant as the next. It's, it's an area that is very varied. A lot of different cultures have uh, melded depending on the territory that they found themselves in. And so each country has a very distinct flavor. Can you talk a little more about that melding of different cultures? Because, you know, I, could, I would have guessed a few different cultures, but actually uh, there are people from all over the world bringing their traditions into Latin America. Yes, and it's fascinating. The first people, of course, being the indigenous groups, the indigenous nations in Latin America, several of which, the most renowned, the Inca, the Aztec, the Mayas, but many, many more. And then, of course, the conquerors or the Spaniards and Portuguese, namely the Iberians that came and conquered Latin America, and then brought the enslaved people from the Africas to replace the population that they had decimated. And after that, at the same time that Ellis Island is getting this massive migration from all over the world, they are also going to Latin American countries and different groups of people land in different countries, in different territories, in different numbers. So, for example, uh, you you have a lot of Italians in New York, for instance, but they also uh, went down to Argentina. They fell in love with the Argentinian land where they could produce wine and it reminded them of home. And a lot of Germans went to Chile, for instance, which is the, the, the country right next to Argentina, uh, producing two very different cuisines and so on and so forth. You have a lot of Chinese, Hakka and Japanese influence in Peru and you have a lot of um, American influence, North American influence in Panama so, and so on. They're all different uh, groups of people. And, of course, many more groups that meet in different countries, meaning the Jews, the Lebanese, they all meet with different um cultures like Italians in different cult- in different countries, but their numbers and the dissimilar combinations is what creates these flavors that are so unique. Sandra, you've been through this amazing journey. What is it 
uh, that you were looking for to make find the recipes that were going to make the cut uh, in this book to represent this huge region? They had to be recipes that home cooks in Latin America that are contemporary to our cooks here are making today. So I didn't want any of the esoteric, rare <laughs> kind of recipes that people, what I call the National Geographic effect, you know, that people usually think of Latin American food as being very exotic and very different and very frightening. No, they had to be modern recipes that have survived over time. So some of them can actually have indigenous roots, but that they're still being made today. They have to be easy with ingredients that are very easy to find no matter where you find yourself. So you would not, not have any trouble finding your um, ingredients in your regular supermarket with a few exceptions. And you can order those online. Very, very few exceptions. And then they had to be practical with um, techniques that the everyday cook knows how to do already. Because what I was trying to do was really make a collection of recipes for the modern cook of today. It's Food Friday. Sandra Gutierrez is with us. Her new book is called Latinissimo, Home Recipes from the 21 Countries of Latin America. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have a favorite uh, restaurant food that you've had uh, from Mexican cuisine or South America, Central America, the Caribbean? Uh, Is there something that you've encountered and made yourself maybe in your travels? Or are we talking about the food you grew up with? Love to hear about that at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Sandra, you shared a couple recipes with us. We've got them online at WPR.org slash Food Friday. Let's check this one out. A pasta con palta. Now, I looked at this and said, wait, this is pasta and pesto. Isn't that Italian? Hold on. It's pasta with (laughs) avocado pesto, which I don't think I've ever had. Tell us about it. It's a delicious, creamy rendition of pesto, and it is from Chile, the country Chile. And I find it fascinating that even though we all speak Spanish in Latin America, the words are not always the same. So (laughs) palta means avocado, which, of course, most people recognize as aguacate. But aguacate is the Nahuatl or Aztec word for it. And once you cross over to South America, it becomes palta. The recipe is so, so simple. It's quicker to make than regular pesto. And it really is a mixture of avocado and walnuts, some salt, some garlic, some olive oil. And while the pasta is cooking, you blend this together in the blender. As soon as the pasta comes out of the pot, you combine it. And the avocado sauce becomes warm and creamy. It's truly delectable, very sophisticated and yet super easy and super inexpensive to make sounds fantastic again you can find that at wpr.org slash food friday now you start off the book uh with a bunch of uh, sauces that we can make a uh, represent that we're going to use in a lot of these recipes on the ideas network facebook page uh, pete mentioned one of them he's a fan of chimichurri sauce which i think is from argentina mostly uh, you've got a couple recipes what goes into a good chimichurri sauce Yes, the chimichurri known um, widely through South America is an Argentinian sauce, and it's based on pesto. Uh, What goes into a really good chimichurri are fresh herbs, in particular parsley, fresh Italian parsley. You have some red pepper flakes, you have quality red wine vinegar and olive oil, and, uh, and then that's where the variations begin. Because if you go to Central America, they have replaced the parsley with cilantro. And many Argentinians will add tomato to their chimichurri. And some will add carrots and celery to their chimichurri. So it's basically an herb sauce used 
as an accoutrement or a side or a topping to steaks and to other protein. Uh, it, it really is delicious. Like the two recipes that I picked are very different and I do offer variations in the book so people can taste what similar foods in different countries are like. Now, I, I said chimichurri is Argentinian and, and you agreed. Are there foods where like there are arguments from one country to the next or one region to the next? Like, no, no, no. We invented that. You borrowed it. Oh, that's a great question. Uh, yes, there are many of those. <laughs> of course, I would say even within the same country. And that's why I stay away from the word authentic, because mm. if a Guatemalan grandmother is making arroz con pollo, which is chicken and rice in their home and adding um, capers and olives, but her neighbor next door to her is actually adding peas and carrots. Who is to say which one is authentic and which one isn't when they're both amazing and they're both this, you know the same variety of of ingredients going into a pot with a few differences that happens throughout latin america uh but we have come we have become used to that because the variations of recipes that are repeated throughout latin america makes each unique for example i'll tell you the simple sauce that came from the spaniards who themselves got it from the persians sofrito and that is the the mirepoix which is the French flavor base of Latin American cuisine. So frito started by being just a mixture of onions and olive oil that were cooked and that would be the base to a recipe. But once you cross over to the Americas, you start getting different countries adding different ingredients. So for example, in Cuba, you'll have them add um, bell peppers and tomato and uh, a chiote, which is a natto. A natto, of course, is what makes cheddar cheese orange. So you've all had a natto, even though it sounds like a foreign Oh, here in Wisconsin, we've eaten a lot of it, yes. <laughs> You've had cheddar cheese in Wisconsin, I know <laughs> that. <laughs> so you're familiar with that. But um, the Cubans will add that to their sofrito, making it a completely different color. And then in Central America, you have the additions of tomatoes on top of that, and so on and so forth. Uh, in Puerto Rico, you will not have any tomatoes. You will actually have an herb called culantro, which is a sawtooth cilantro, it's called. It's a long-leaf cilantro, very different from what we typically know as cilantro in the rest of the Americas. So every country added their own ingredient, making one recipe into many. And that is why I tell you we're used to having these competitions of we made it first, we made it first. It really doesn't <laughs> matter. It's who makes it last that matters, I think. It's Food Friday. We're talking to food writer Sandra Gutierrez about her new cookbook, Latinissimo, Home Recipes from the 21 Countries of Latin America. You can join in at 800-642-1234. If you've traveled to Mexico, Central America, South America, or the Caribbean, you have some favorite foods you encountered along the way. If your family has origins in Latin America, what are some of your family's favorite dishes? The, the food you grew up with, have you modified it for life here in Wisconsin along the way? Do you have favorite dishes or questions for our guest? Call in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. You can also post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. We'll pick up our Food Friday conversation coming up on Central Time. 
You're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. I'm Rob Ferrett. We're picking up our Food Friday conversation with Sandra Gutierrez, food writer and author of the new cookbook, Latinissimo, Home Recipes from the 21 Countries of Latin America. We're talking about dishes from all over the Caribbean, South and Central America, up to Mexico, and you can join in at 800-642-1234. Are we talking about food that you like, that you love, that you want to know more about, that you want to know how to make that one particular thing you had at a restaurant or while traveling? Or did you grow up with food from one of these traditions we're talking about? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or I don't know, maybe you're calling for uh, some takeout based on this conversation. Join in at 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Now, Sandra, we've got another recipe you shared with us up at WPR.org slash Food Friday. Now, growing up, uh, you know, in Michigan, plantains, I wouldn't have known. Is that a banana? Uh, They weren't at stores. Now they're all over the place, Uh, easy to find even at non-specialty grocery stores. I love them. I can't get enough of them. You've got uh, platanos con tocino or plantain and bacon hash. This is plantains, bacon, and eggs, a winner in my book. Tell us about the recipe. Absolutely. I wanted to include ingredients that are not traditionally Latin American and, however, have made one of the biggest impacts in our food. And one of those is plantains. They actually come from Africa. Mm -hmm. And when they're green, they're used as a vegetable. They are starchy and they can be used um, as a potato. You can fry it into fries and, and, and mash it into mashes, you know, like mashed potatoes. But when they're sweet and they're yellow and turning a little brown, they become uh, so delicious to cook. And bacon, of course, is salty and bacon is bacon. Bacon has that umami flavor we all love. And in combination, they make this very delicious, easy breakfast dish from Honduras. And that was part of what I wanted to do in this book. It was to demystify Latin American food. It's not all spicy. It's not all cheese laden it's not all covered in sauces and you will find a lot of similarities between the food of latin america and foods that you're you know used to eating here so you know like your potato hash with bacon or your casseroles that you have with potatoes or sweet potatoes and chives this is a very simple rendition of a hash and it's just plantains that are cooked in rendered bacon uh, fat and then you add the crispy bacon to it and you top it with a fried egg and it's just oh an amazing breakfast now let's talk about uh using those plantains uh now when we want them in that uh, less ripe that's easy to tell when i get plantains i let a i let it look like they're rotting on the outside like those the peel is getting black and then they're ready for this kind of recipe right that means the inside is ripe that's right. It almost looks like it's rotting. And that's the amazing thing about it. But at that point, it's sweet. But the fun thing about it is that if you buy them when they're still green, you can actually shred them, you can cut them into big pieces and double fry them. Um, so you fry them once and then you mash it down into a chip and then you ma- you fry it a second time. Those are called tostones. And I offer a lot of recipes with all the different kinds of or different styles of ripeness of the plantains the stages and uh it like that i do with many many ingredients in the book this is an ingredient based cookbook Mm -hmm. because i find that many of the cuisines have uh the same ingredients that thread them together even though they produce completely different results and that was important for me it is essential that people get to know the food of your neighbors i don't know why in the united states we went so far into first exploring the food of Asia and the Middle East and all the cookbooks, you know, from Europe. 
and we have truly uh, left Latin America on the side when it is actually a fascinating melting pot of global flavors. You mentioned you organized the cookbook. I, I was expecting country by country. No, it's uh, some base ingredients. One of them is corn. I like corn. Can you talk about some of the varieties of ways that uh, corn is used across these 21 countries? Yes, I call corn the backbone of the Americas. It's the one ingredient we all have in common, North America into Central America into South America. Uh, and corn in Latin America has very different ways of being used. You can use it raw like we use it here and eat it in salads like the esquite salad in Mexico. Or you can nixtamalize it, which means that you get your flint corn or heirloom corn and make it go through a chemical reaction where you put it in water that has been treated with calcium hydroxide, which makes the heirloom corn lose, lose its outer kernel. And then that is what you mill and you make masa from, and that is what you make tortillas and tamales from. But once you go into South America, the corn goes into a different chemical reaction and a different way of processing it. And you get this flour, which is also instant, like your masa harina, but it is pre-cooked flour. Masa harina has not been pre-cooked. It's called masa arepa or arepa flour. And you make these corn cakes that are truly delectable. They're mostly found in Venezuela and in Colombia, and they can be different thicknesses, but it's not pliable. They're not pliable like tortillas where you can fold around the food. These actually serve as bases or as bread or as a sandwich that you can actually cut through in the middle. And the outside of it is like toasty and wonderfully crispy and delicious but the inside remains soft like polenta and that is the flavor that you get and that's different mm. from tortillas uh, and then of course you cook them you put them in stews it depends where, where you are the different uses of corn but it is the ingredient that is central to all of the cuisines of the americas it's food friday talking to sandra gutierrez about her new cookbook latinissimo home recipes from the 21 countries of latin america all right, Sandra, a great food that's in abundance in Wisconsin right now is squash, our winter squash. There's still some summer squash lurking out there as well. That is one of your ingredients. Can you share some inspiration? Uh, let's go with uh, winter squash. You've got some butternut and things like that. Uh, what's a good inspiration from your, your travels and journeys for us to do here in Wisconsin with our winter squash? There is a wonderful locro or a special soup from Ecuador that's made with potato and squash, and then they add fresh cheese to it. It is subtle. It is warm. Of course, you know, it embraces you on a cold night, but it, it also has this depth of flavor that um, there's no spice in it. There's no heat in it in terms of chiles, but it has a little bit of cumin, and it offers you this delicious new twist on what would be a normal butternut squash soup. It's really, really good. We also cook squashes in sweet recipes, so you will find them transformed into jams and jellies. Um, you will find them used in the summer squash. You will find used in a dish from Mexico called calabacitas, which is simply stir-fried zucchini and uh, yellow squash with pimentos and with tomatoes and onions and it's really delicious it, you make make it in about 20 minutes and you serve it with your dinner or you can top pasta with it or do a lot of other things the point of the each one of these ingredients is that once it falls into the hands of a different groups of people who um, are already in the countries but also descend in into the countries from different parts of the world they get 
changed and transformed into dishes that are not as different as those that you've tasted before. So everybody's used now to having a butternut squash soup or a bisque in the mm -hmm. fall and winter. You will find different renditions of that in Latin America. And that's what I wanted my readers to take and the cooks to find recipes that don't ask them to take a very big leap of faith where they're going to go, oh, my goodness, that sounds so weird. But on the contrary, there are things that they can say, well, I love minestrone soup, so that means I will love the minestra from Argentina, which is a similar soup, or I love pasta sauce, and I, I would love to try the Peruvian pasta sauce that's made, again, with annatto, which you use to color cheddar cheese, and different ingredients, and have has actually no tomatoes. So um, all these different uh, ideas that I want people to, to feel comfortable trying, because it only takes a little bit of imagination to to say i i know what it resembles and you don't have to feel like i'm sending you through this voyage of very exotic different <laughs> foods now sandra uh as i mentioned there's like 300 recipes in this book that sounds like a lot but i understand uh you narrowed this down from the thousands of recipes do you have a a sequel concept in the works because you got a lot more uh material lying around i have boxes and boxes of recipes <laughs> lying around and it was really hard to make the cut. I went from 9,000 to 3,000 to 2,000. And then my editor started saying, you know, cutting and cutting. Because you can't make a book that big. It would take, you know, a train to carry each book. It, it already is a big book as it is. But I tried to find the recipes that represent, like I told you at the beginning, food that home cooks are making today in their homes. So with modern equipment like blenders and food processors and things that really will I think, I think resonate to the American cook today. So there are recipes with very easy ingredients to find, not expensive recipes to make, and things that are similar to other foods that people have had before, which will give you a nice picture of the, the, the kinds of food that Latin Americans eat. It's not what most people think. Uh, it's not, you know, the iguana from the jungle in Guatemala that you <laughs> have to macerate and chilies for seven days before you cook it, you know, or weird recipes like that. We actually eat very similar food. So nice chicken cooked in coconut uh, that will remind mm. you of a, a Thai curry, but it's actually from Panama. Fantastic. Or, you know, a delicious soup that re will remind you of a chowder because it's made with coconut milk, but it's actually from Belize. And, and we'll leave it there. Thanks to our Food Friday guest, Sandra Gutierrez. Her new book is called Latinissimo, Home Recipes from the 21 Countries of Latin America. You can find a couple recipes from the book over at WPR.org slash Food Friday. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. Courts in both Colorado and Minnesota are hearing cases this week over separate lawsuits to disqualify former President Donald Trump from appearing on the 2024 presidential ballots in those states. Both cases revolve around the 14th Amendment, which has a clause that prevents candidates from running for office if they engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the Constitution after having taken an oath of office. The plaintiffs are arguing that the former president's involvement in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol makes him ineligible to appear on the ballot next year. Attorneys for Trump say he didn't engage in insurrection and that the courts at the state level would overstep the separation of powers by disqualifying a candidate from a national election. Both cases are expected to be decided by early January and are likely to be appealed, may end up all in the U.S. Supreme Court. Our next guest conducted a legal analysis of the arguments in the case and is here to help us understand each side. 
You can join in at 800-642-1234. Have you been following this line of argument? Do you think Trump should be kept off of ballots based on the 14th Amendment? Why or why not? Should a similar case come up in Wisconsin? Do you have questions for our legal expert? Call in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. David Schultz is a professor of political science at Hamlin University and professor of law at the University of Minnesota. He's the author of several books on politics and law, including Trumpism, American Politics, and the Age of Politainment. David, welcome back to Central Time. Thank you for having me again. It's always a pleasure to be here. Before we get into the specific cases in your state, David, and in Colorado, let's talk about this bigger argument. Now, there's a buzz. A couple of conservative legal scholars wrote this big piece considering this clause in the 14th Amendment saying, Yeah, it does apply today, and it applies to former President Trump. Can you talk us through the the outline of this argument? Sure. And what the two legal scholars do is to engage, and as you indicated here, they went back and looked at this this Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, and you, you, you more or less paraphrased it on the air. And their argument is that, first, that this clause was not written just to apply to the circumstances of the Civil War but that it has an enduring life even to this day. Second, even though the clause doesn't specifically refer to the president of the United States, um, we could infer that it does apply to the president or that the clause essentially amends the qualifications to be president of the United States. Three, that And applying it to the contemporary situation, what happened on January 6, 2021 is insurrection. And therefore, as a result of that, that if Trump engaged in insurrection, if this clause still has life today, if it applies to the president of the United States, their argument is that then election officials have a requirement, a duty to exclude Donald Trump from the ballot and prevent him um, from um, from appearing on the ballot in 2024. Now, technically, what the insurrection clause says is that you're ineligible to hold office. Uh, but as the lawsuits in Colorado and in Minnesota, and I believe there's one in Michigan, and there's a pending one, I think possibly in Arizona, they're basically saying that also means ineligible to actually appear on the ballot. But that's sort of the core of their argument, that this clause written back um, in the 14th Amendment, again, during the Civil War, applies to Donald Trump to this day. One of the phrases they use in that piece, I think, is uh, self-enforcing, meaning that just like the the requirement you have to be of a certain age to run for president and that you have to uh, have American citizenship, there's nationality requirements, they're saying, same thing. This automatically applies if you're in violation of it, you're not eligible. It seems a lot trickier. It seems like there's a dicier argument there than you're, you can just look at somebody's age on their birth certificate and say yay or nay. You can look at their citizenship and say yay or nay. This seems a lot more subtle. It is subtle and more complicated. And if I can, and I know you're saying to speak to it more generally, and I will here, is that figuring out what we actually mean by Um, An insurrection is a matter of debate. I mean, most people would concede and say what happened during the Civil War where the South seceded from the Union. That 
probably qualifies Mm -hmm. um, as as an insurrection. And the whole goal back then was to prevent people who had served in Congress or in state legislatures who then served the Confederacy from coming back now and holding office in the United States because they're concerned that what? They're not going to be loyal to the United States. So we, we have a whole bunch of stuff that probably worked back then. But in terms of self-executing right now or self-enforcing, it becomes more complicated to figure out, well, what do we mean by an insurrection? Who has the authority to keep Trump off the ballot? If, if you're going to rule that it's an insurrection, by what type of evidence? What evidence is admissible? Um, if, for those of you who know some differences between civil and criminal law, is it a criminal law standard of evidence beyond a reasonable doubt? Is it civil in terms of preponderance of evidence? This is where it gets a lot trickier in terms of determining, is it self-enforcing Is it, um, and, and it's self-executing? Talking to David Schultz, professor of political science at Hamlin University of Law at the University of Minnesota, looking at this 14th Amendment argument in a couple state courts this very week, saying President Trump, former President Trump, should not be on ballots because of a clause in the 14th Amendment. You can join in with your thoughts, your opinions on this, or your questions about it at 800-642-1234. All right, David, let's uh, head over to the Minnesota Supreme Court. Uh, Yesterday, uh, one of uh, former President Trump's attorneys, Nicholas Nicholson, made the argument that voters should decide whether Trump gets back into the White House, not the courts. Here's a listen. Authority reflects an important reality about the purpose of the political question doctrine, which is to ensure that, obviously, political questions and judicial questions remain separate. Political decisions and judicial decisions remain separate. We think that's an important part of a healthy separation of powers. We think Owens reflects that. We think all the other cases reflect that. And we think the outcome should be the same here. That's a concern, I think, not even just from critics of former President Trump, that uh, this is a big this could be, if courts go along with this idea, a big intrusion of the courts into a political electoral process. Yes. And and I think what some people are concerned about is take us back approximately 25 years ago to the U.S. Supreme Court decision in Bush v. Gore, where there was a dispute over vote counting in in Florida in a presidential election, and the U.S. Supreme Court entered, and it halted the vote count. And many people said that what the court did was wrong, that it essentially decided that George Bush was going to become president of the United States. And for a lot of people, there's this concern that, that it should be not the courts, but the people that get to decide who to be president of the United States. And in Thursday's oral arguments before the Minnesota Supreme Court, Chief Justice um, Hudson, I think, asked the most interesting question. And she turned to the attorneys representing the group that wanted to exclude Donald Trump. And she said, even if we as the courts have the authority to do this, should we do this? And and she was echoing this point that Trump's attorney was making is that when in doubt, the courts should not, this is her comment or a paraphrasing it. Um, when in doubt, courts shouldn't decide elections. Let the people decide the elections, the outcome, outcome of who's going to become president of the United States. And, and, and that's a, and whether you like Trump or dislike Trump, that's a pretty powerful argument to say that that we don't want judges picking presidents. We want what? We want the people to have a voice in here. And any decision, as you did in my intro here, any decision on the merits 
in Colorado or in, in Minnesota or elsewhere is likely to get it all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, where they might ultimately make a decision. Does Trump appear on the ballot or not appear on the ballot? You mentioned the Chief Justice of Minnesota Supreme Court, uh, Natalie Hudson. Here is the Chief Justice uh, bringing up another uh, concern uh, about this case. It does seem to me that you run square into the problem that Chief Justice Chase talked about in Griffin, where you have the potentiality of 50 different states um, who, depending on the, the nature of the statutes in those states, uh, deciding this question differently, deciding whether states have the right to determine uh, who's eligible for a national office. And, and that concerns me that you have this possibility for, as Justice Chase said, for just chaos. So should we do it, even if we could do it and we can do it? As she ended there on the bit that you mentioned earlier, but this issue right. of, okay, it's a federal election for president, but states administer elections. So here you are in state courts. I don't know. I'm confused about the venue a little bit here. Why should a bunch of different state courts be weighing in on this issue? And that's exactly, I think, the concern that Justice Hudson had here. It's not just a, it's not just a um, separation of powers. It's a federalism issue at the end of the day. Uh, so what if Minnesota and Colorado and, let's say, Michigan throw Trump off the ballot? But other courts reach a different conclusion. We have this kind of patchwork quilt going on here in terms of each different state saying he's eligible or not eligible. He's an insurrectionist or not. And I know the attorneys trying to get Trump off the ballot said, well, the U.S. Supreme Court is going to resolve uh, will eventually resolve this issue if we get enough different opinions here. But still, it does raise this kind of concern that should we let, I don't know, the state of Minnesota make a decision that could have an impact for the entire country of the United States. I know Minnesota and Wisconsin are neighbors and outside of our sports rivalry, you know, we actually are, are very close in terms of states here, but I don't, but I'm not sure um, Wisconsin wants Minnesota deciding um, who's going to be president of the United States or, or are making decisions that are going to impact the voters in Wisconsin. We're talking to political science and law professor David Schultz about lawsuits in Colorado and Minnesota and some on the way elsewhere aiming to keep former President Trump off of presidential ballots in those states in 2024 based on an argument uh, from a provision in the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. You can join in at 800-642-1234. What do you think of this notion? Good idea? Bad idea? What do you worry about? What do you hope for? What is confusing you about this? If you're confused about something, you're not alone on this, I'm guessing. Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. We'll pick up the conversation coming up next on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We continue our talk with David Schultz, political science professor at Hamlin University, law professor at the University of Minnesota, with us today to look at the legal arguments and lawsuits going on this week in Minnesota and Colorado, others on the way that aim to disqualify former President Trump from the 2024 presidential ballots in those states based on a clause in the 14th Amendment. Let's go to your calls at 800-642-1234. Tom is with us in Milwaukee. Tom, hi. Hi, I'd like to ask your guess. Um, my impression is that these lawsuits have been filed by conservative groups. Uh, you, you know, the uh, I think the assumption would be that they would be uh, Democratic groups that would be trying to prevent uh, Trump from running again. So, is there any particular reason for that? 
Tom, thanks for the call. David, my understanding is it, it uh, is a mix of voters in some cases. Some are Republicans, as we mentioned, uh, some conservative legal scholars advanced this idea. Uh, judge, a conservative guru-type judge, J. Michael Luddig, has spoken out in favor of this 14th Amendment interpretation. This isn't just, I guess, a liberal conservative argument. You're absolutely correct that the two professors who wrote this, um, I actually know one of them. Um, one of them is one of my former teachers, Michael Stokes Paulson, um, is, 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 is quite conservative. Uh, but it's been sort of picked up by a variety of different groups. The coalition that is bringing the, uh, the lawsuit in Minnesota um, is, is a supposedly bipartisan group. It's composed of a former secretary of state in Minnesota who was a Democrat, a former justice on the Minnesota Supreme Court, who was a Republican. And so if we look at across the country, um, it's it, it really is an interesting coalition um, that's bringing these suits that for a variety of political reasons, uh, both, let us say, Democrats and liberals and some in the Republican Party who are who are not supportive and don't like Donald Trump, they're kind of coming together here to uh, um, to bring these kind of lawsuits. Tom, thanks for the call. Christopher joins us now in Fitchburg. Christopher, hi. Hi. Um, you said, I think, several times that uh, why should Minnesota be deciding for, like, say, Wisconsin, who the president should be, but they're not, right? They're just deciding who in Minnesota is on the ballot, um, which, and in Colorado or the other states, um, which are likely to be a Democratic-leaning state anyway. Christopher, thanks for the call. Yeah, if the state court in Minnesota said uh, no Trump on the ballot, uh, that might not affect the outcome of the election nationally at all, potentially. It might not affect it, although there becomes interesting questions here in terms of, he's right, Minnesota and Colorado are likely to go Democrat. Why, why might they want to do this um, if you're a group that wants to keep them off your, let's say, a Democratic-leading group? Well, if you don't have to really worry about defending Minnesota, can you now shift some of your resources over to the state of Wisconsin? Um, and therefore, Wisconsin being much more of a swing state than Minnesota, uh, that and so, so I think tactically that's going on here in terms of what's happening. I should also mention one other thing here is I think Justice Hudson and some of the other justices mentioned it also yesterday in the oral arguments. Even though right now it looks like Donald Trump is going to get the nomination um, for the Republican Party or is in the lead, we still have a long way to go. I mean, who knows what's going to happen in the next six months? Maybe Nikki Haley, maybe Tim Scott, maybe somebody catches fire. Maybe he doesn't get the nomination. Maybe the the um, all the lawsuits, all the criminal inquiries against him, um, he's, there's convictions, things could change. And so I just mentioned this also because there are a lot of things that could change. And I think Minnesota was concerned about, about are we just not ripe? Are we just not there to even have this conversation? But I do think that what happens even in safe states or relatively safe states like Minnesota in that mean it has an impact in terms of resource shifting and campaign strategy, including in states like Wisconsin. Thanks for the call, Christopher. Brad joins us now in Wild Rose. Brad, hi. Hey. What did you want to bring up, Brad? Say, I just wanted to make a comment. I I think that, you know, if, if Trump truly did do something that, you know, would be illegal enough to take him off the ballot, I think that should be done in every state. Brad, thanks a lot for the call. That is the argument, uh, I think, obviously, from the people bringing these cases, David. 
It is exactly. And I think in part what they're hoping is that if they get, let's say, a favorable ruling in Colorado or Minnesota, that the case eventually gets it all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court and agrees with them. There was a conference at the University of Minnesota earlier this week, and some law professors were speculating. Now, I don't agree with their speculation. They were thinking, oh, there may be four or five votes on the U.S. Supreme Court right now to, um, to keep them off the ballot nationwide. Well, I, I don't believe that. I think I think that was just sort of kind of, you know, idle chatter. But but I think that's the hope. Get a favorable ruling in a sympathetic court. Now, I should also point out that one of the concerns that some of us have expressed about this is that, remember, Donald Trump's narrative from four years ago or three years ago is stolen election. What would happen if if he's actually thrown off the ballot in a Colorado or in a Minnesota? Doesn't this feed into the the um, the narrative of Trump that somebody's trying to steal the election? And I wonder right now if these lawsuits can backfire in terms of both giving giving um, what is it cogency to his argument and maybe mobilizing even more some of his supporters. Thanks a lot for that call, Brad. And you uh, you did a presentation on this very issue. You shared the slides with us. And one of the phrases that stands out to me here is policy and political considerations weigh against exclusion of the former president. Can you uh, talk about that a little more? Sure. A variety of things. One I just mentioned here, mm-hmm. the, the, po- the policy consideration or political consideration of the backfire, you know, um, by the very fact that the lawsuits are being brought, is it not feeding into Trump's narrative about stolen elections? The policy consideration I talked a little bit about before also in terms of do we really want courts at the end of the day to to make decisions about who's going to be able to be eligible for president? But then I'm also wondered about a political tit for tat that let's say Minnesota or Colorado throws Trump off the ballot. What if now some group challenges, and again, we're going to presume for the sake of argument, challenges Joe Biden's candidacy and says that something he did, and I don't know what it is, um, something that he did makes him an insurrectionist and therefore tries to pressure to get him off the ballot. That becomes, I think, one of the considerations, too, in terms of does this set a dangerous precedent for uh, perhaps playing this larger, I don't know, what are they going to call it? Tit for tat, cat and mouse game, whatever it may be. So for a variety of reasons, when I did this presentation before the State Bar Association the other day, we were raising a lot of these questions in terms of legally, um, does this clause even apply to this day? There's a lot of legal historians. And remember, I'm not a historian, but I defer to legal historians. A lot of legal historians that say, eh, this was written really to address the Civil War, not to this. And then, and then even after we get past the legal issues, it is these policy and um, political considerations that we have to think about. Time for one more quick call. Joe is with us in Platteville. Joe, hi. Uh, yeah, your, your guest just hit on what I was calling about. This was designed for the Civil War uh, to keep the old Confederates out of the Congress. They tried to join in their old uniforms and everything, and it got everybody all ticked off. And we've really, as I understand it, have talked about it in courts in such a way that it, or interpreted it, that it's not even usable anymore. Joe, thanks a lot for the call in our last few moments. David, you were just uh, hinting at that. There's certainly not universal agreement that this thing would still apply. You're absolutely correct here. Again, again, I remind people I'm a lawyer, I'm a law law professor, I'm a political scientist, not a PhD in history, not an expert (laughs) on this. 
but I did a lot of reading and consulted some of the best books and historians out there. And, and they're not convinced that this applies to this day, that as a caller just called in and said that this was about the unique circumstances of the Civil War, as the caller just indicated, and maybe this doesn't even apply at all. Joe, thanks for the call. And David, thanks again for joining us today. My pleasure always, and thank you to the audience for calling in. That's David Schultz, professor of political science at Hamlin University of Law at the University of Minnesota. Talk to him today about lawsuits in Minnesota and Colorado. More to come, it looks like, that argue former President Trump should be disqualified from the 2024 presidential election based on a clause in the post-Civil War 14th Amendment to the Constitution. Coming up Monday on Central Time, colder weather and less daylight might prevent us from getting outside, but we'll get some inspiration to help us enjoy the outdoors all the way through the winter. Plus, we'll get a taste of Wisconsin horror with the author of a new novel set in the state and take a wider look at horror in fiction. That and more coming up Monday here on Central Time.